and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why are we on the International Space Station? I say that largely because on Zoom, our guest has an awesome background and it makes it look like he is there. Before we introduce our guest, I want to introduce our panelists. Today, we have Eric Berry on the show. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here. Justin Dorfman. Howdy, y'all. Alan Gunner. Hello. And our guest today is Eric Rasmussen, who is calling from Spain. Eric has been working transatlantically for a long time. So while he works in California, lives in Spain, he's also on the ISS. Not really, although that would be cool. Listeners, if you know any astronauts, let us know. Eric, can you tell us a bit about what you do there and how you got invited on this podcast? Well, I've been doing web development for 20-some years, and both, I guess I started out in Java and then you know moved more towards the front end with, with JavaScript. And just out of some side projects that I was working on while I had a day job, I started building some libraries that seemed useful to share on open source. And I did. And just being at the right place at the right time became quite popular. And I discovered that I really enjoyed maintaining open source libraries and helping other developers with their problems and found it very interesting, all the different edge cases that people would come and say, hey, can you make your library do this or that? And so I've been involved in the open source community for, I guess, five or six years now. And I got to know Eric Berry from CodeFund. And that's how I got to be on this podcast. So you're a classic maintainer, right? You make open source libraries and you maintain them awesomely. I think you're most known as the creator of Redux Form and Final Form, which are state yes. management libraries for React, right? They are for managing form state. So with React, the React docs from day one and till day now, if you ask how to keep form state, they will tell you how to do it for a single input. And then they're just like, okay, go build your forms. Good luck. And yep. I have a gag that I say in some of my talks where it's kind of interesting that the creator of React is Facebook. They, like Google, are famous for having a single input form. You go to Facebook, there's only one input on the form. They're not doing validation of does this field match this other field or whatever. They just have a single field. So obviously that's kind of simplistic and their actual product, which is not what we use, but is the advertising monstrosity behind the scenes to their actual clients has, is full of forms. So there wasn't any guidance in React about how to build forms. And I was trying to build a page with a form that had like 20 inputs in it. And I looked around at what could manage state. And that was right when Redux was super ascendant and becoming really popular. And I thought, well, I could maybe keep the form state in Redux and it works. And that was clearly scratching an itch that the React community had because the amount of support and interest in that library was pretty wild. And then as a maintainer, 
this was really my first foray into open source. I made some rookie mistakes of trying to please everyone where one would say, hey, can you make it also handle this other case? And I would say, well, yeah, let's see, we can do this. We can make it do this. And we can have this config flag that if it's true, then it's going to behave in this other way. And I basically ended up adding all of this functionality to it to the point that it got quite bloated and less maintainable because I didn't know how to say no, or I didn't know how to, I don't know. I, I just said yes to everything and let's see if we can do this. And if you submit a PR and all the tests pass, sure, I'll accept it. And it, so it sort of ballooned in you know, bundle size. That's how we measure those things in the JavaScript community. And so then I took another shot at what a form library could be. And I took a step back and built Final Form, which is a totally different approach. Well, one of the things I'm curious about is you're saying it ballooned and it was too much. But you also said early on, I enjoy maintaining open source, which... Oh, yeah. (laughs) How does that work? I don't know. I find there's something fundamentally and intrinsically enjoyable about someone requesting a feature and implementing that feature and then them being like, oh, thank you. This is, you saved me 20 hours of work that I would have had to do to figure this out. And then other people come and they also needed that particular feature and you can multiply that savings across lots of different users. So yeah, I enjoy it. It did balloon, but it was enjoyable, but you know, not sustainable, so to speak. Because I guess if you have enough free time, that's what basically open source is is based on, is if you have enough free time and you enjoy doing it, then it gets built. But as soon as you don't, then we run into problems as a community. So one of the reasons that got me on this podcast is this blog post that I wrote a couple months ago. I love open source and the fact that I can see that it is sort of rotten at its core bothers me. And what I mean by that is the incentives are misaligned from all sides. Say you write a piece of code that is you find useful and you share it and thousands of people and companies start using that piece of code. Like if you decide not to update that library like even if you don't make any changes, still there's maintenance that has to happen to keep you up to date with your other dependencies and et cetera. And it's kind of bizarre that these giant companies use this free open source software and then don't make any effort to make sure that the authors of that code help to maintain. In this blog post I wrote, I made the analogy of, imagine if there was a car manufacturer that one particular part that was really important to the engine was just made by this guy down the street that really likes making this particular part. And he just does it for fun and puts them all in a box on his front lawn and anyone can take this, whatever. If a car manufacturer really relied on that particular part, they would make darn sure that person was taken care of and that they had some other backup if that person just decided to go do something else one day. It seems like the big corporations should be incentivized to, I don't know, somehow maintain open source. But 
again, that somehow is a big word because I don't really know how, like, I don't know the answer, but it seems like there's a lot of corporate revenue that's resting on the free work of just random individual world, which seems broken. Eric, I've followed your path for quite a while and I've been overly enthused on how positive you are throughout the whole process. And you and I've got to know each other a little bit, you know, offset, so to speak. And you are one of those true altruists that love to give back. I guess two questions. One, does the sustainability of open source depend on people like you with that mentality? And two, have any companies, large companies reached out to you in an effort to support you in any way? No companies have reached out to me. And I am aware that my library is being used by some of the biggest players in Silicon Valley. Again, I don't even know what that reach out would be. Can we give you a certain number of dollars every month to make sure that you keep this up to date or that you deal with our issues or prioritize our issues or something? And it seems like, yes, that the industry does rely on the altruism of individuals. I know that in my projects, I use software that is written by just individuals. And, you know, I sort of follow some of them on Twitter and I see that they're just people that in their spare time like to come home and write some open source code. And that seems unsustainable. Or maybe it is sustainable because there's always going to be some other younger, more energetic person to come along and keep it going. But I don't know. It seems weird. Your library, is it like on a dependency tree or is it like people, they go NPM install your library? There are some other more opinionated solutions that do depend on my library. So there is some of that. And I don't know if there's any way that I could know what percentages those are, but there's a bunch of people that just come and use my library as is, I think. So it's hard to know. I think most of it is just direct use. Got it. You know, I've been doing open source sustainability for about 10 years now, and it's really improved, you know, in terms of like open collective, allowing corporations to make donations without worrying about money laundering or anything like that. There is still work to be done. And I think that's one thing that Richard and I and a few others are working on the marketing working group. And I think this is like a classic marketing issue with the library itself. Because I think you say there are larger companies that are using this project, but I don't know if they know that, hey, you're looking for certain amounts of contribution from them. For example, so like Webpack. Webpack does very well because they have great marketing to say, hey, if you're using this, tell your boss that you're using it and you can sponsor it on Open Collective and a bunch of people will see your logo. And I think that's kind of where you're missing it and where you can really improve on getting that messaging out and sustaining the project. So not more of a question, just like a statement, because I've been following you for over a year because of CodeFund and I think the project's really great and I just don't see that marketing aspect. So I guess maybe my question would be, 
what are you going to do to improve to get that message out there that you are looking for contributions from larger organizations? I mean, apart from listing how to fund this project, like again, marketing is more work and it's absolutely more time that I don't know that as an individual I necessarily have. I would love to work on open source full time with a you can't compare that to the kind of salary that I can make if I'm not doing that, right? So totally. I would have to take a severe pay cut to work on open source all the time, but I don't know. It would be enjoyable, but yeah, I don't know. I don't have a particular dollar amount that I could say, hey, if you're using this and you are a Fortune 500 company, then I request you know, $1,000 a month or something from you. I don't know how that would work. And yes, there are very few cases like Webpack and Babel to some extent, but also the people working on those things are making less than they could be making if they took a corporate job. So I don't know, just a strange situation. And the other possible options of some sort of pay for licensing doesn't seem to be the answer either because most people are just going to ignore the fact that you have a license or they will see that you have a license and then go to some other competitor that doesn't. So I don't know. I wish I had more answers. I That's wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was just trying to no, I, people that don't really know about your projects like Eric and I do. I mean, it's no coincidence that I start this podcast asking questions by Paul Gauguin, right? Which are like, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? These are questions that are not answerable. You can answer them facetiously. You know, I'm Richard. I came from my kitchen. Now I'm here. I'm going back to my kitchen later. But how do we sustain open source? Who knows? Some of the things you said, though, have really resonated with me. One of them is I really like the car maker box. You know, the guy who makes parts and puts them out in the box. But the main difference with code is that code is generally static and it's made once, right? And then it rots and then you have to make it again later. It's infinitely copyable. It doesn't hurt anything to copy code over and over again, which it makes it really easy to abuse because then when it rots and you depend upon the person who originally made it to go back and fix it. And that's you know one of the issues with open source. So it's almost equivalent to the guy who makes car parts, but it's not quite. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it just seems if you true that if you have a library that you installed last year and it is still somewhat working, but then something breaks because of some other dependency change in the tree. I mean, it would be way easier for the person that originally wrote that code to go and fix it or to just update the whatever needs to be updated in the dependencies for it to, for it to work again. Yeah, I, I understand that the analogy breaks down, but I think that if you had a big part of your business that was based on the work of individuals that have no contract with you and might decide to go away at any moment, I think in any other circumstance, your accountants and your shareholders and your lawyers would be like, this is unacceptable risk. We need to have some of this in-house or something. I don't know. It seems strange that companies are okay with that. I'm curious if money was never part of the equation, if you could never make a dime off of this 
How would that change your outlook on open source and the projects that you put out? And would you continue to maintain them? Wow. What a fantastic question. I mean, originally, that's how it was because it had never occurred to me that money could be made from this. And I was just putting things out there. And in that way, the fact that some open source projects get more funding than others is also kind of what has broken the expectation level. But again, even if I was just putting something out there and someone was using it, it seems strange to build a product and a business on some code that could go away tomorrow. But then again, everything that we use on the internet is built on open source in some way. So yeah, I think if there was no money in open source, it would be cleaner, but also still sort of risky for the consumers. Now I could see a time maybe in 30 or 40 years where you would look back and say, I was an open source maintainer when people didn't understand the importance of that. And I could see in the future where this is no longer an issue, where there is a essentially a system set up to enable the ongoing development and maintenance of open source. And I kind of look at right now, because what happened is the whole community shifted so quickly towards open source. I mean, I was developing back in 1998 And the idea of sharing code was just unheard of. In my memory, it didn't really become a thing until the mid-2000s. And so if you look at it, it's only been about 15 years since we've all decided, oh, I guess sharing code is okay. But then once that happens, everybody's looking at things differently. Businesses still think that businesses make money and everything that they do has to like have a positive return on investment. And now you're kind of this pioneer, this worker that has built all this value. And I think that right now, I just really believe right now is a time where we're all going to look back and say, This is when we were very confused. And in the future, I really hope that solutions come about, corporations come about, grant programs come about, all this stuff where it's highly focused and understood the value of open source contributions. I guess that's more of a rant than anything else, but that's what I hope to see in the future. And I really believe I will. That's a beautiful vision. That would be great. And it sort of dovetails with this overall societal question of what are we going to do when artificial intelligence gets clever enough to put most of us out of the job, you know, with UBI and universal basic income and what can we fund people to just to live? And if they feel like being magnanimous with their time and building value, then great. Wouldn't it be nice if a young person could think about coding and think, oh, I'm going to make the best library for sparkly buttons out there and everyone's going to want to use my UI library and I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be a millionaire for making the best of a particular kind of thing. But when the expectation is that everything is free, you can't come in there and pretend that this is a marketplace and ask for money for your thing. It's a bit like on the mobile app stores where the prices of everything went down to like you could, everyone expected that a a game on your phone would cost $2 or something. And that was 
really confusing for game developers because when the expectation is that things are basically free, it really kind of shakes up the system of incentives. Wouldn't that be a wonderful vision? I wonder how we get there. So one of the things you suggest in your blog post, you talk about how a donation model doesn't work. It works partially for some people. I mean, we've seen Open Collective help a lot of projects out. The Spotify model doesn't work, but it works partially for some people. We've seen Spotify help some musicians out, not everyone. But you mentioned uh, an insurance option, right? Where wouldn't it be great if we could just pay some company to insure things? Kind of like the Tidelift model, but Tidelift sort of functions in a weird space where they're taking advantage of enterprise companies that have a lot of budget and don't know where to put it. And so they say, buy this entire ecosystem, and then we'll go out and reach the maintainers themselves. But an insurance model is somewhat more, let's fund something, put the funds in escrow, and when there's a, an issue, then we'll fund the individual maintainers who could maybe fix that issue. Is that around what you envisioned? Did you put more thought into that model? I didn't go all the way to the escrow part, but I mean, that's why corporations have lawyers on retainer, right? You pay someone to not necessarily to do anything right now, but to be on your side when you need them. And it's say a company, maybe through Open Collective or maybe directly or however, maybe a company realized that they had 500 forms in their application that was using my library. And they were concerned that what if I go away or decide to stop maintaining this, if they considered how much it would be worth it to them to prevent that from happening, you know, have some actuary figure out that if there was a big problem with all their forms, it would take them $50,000 worth of effort to migrate something else or to fix the problem directly. If they could say, okay, well, in that case, we'll pay Eric a $1,000 a month for, you know, for the foreseeable future with the promise that if we ever have a, a big problem, he'll be happy to swoop in and, and fix it. I don't know. It's like we pay the, the fire department, hoping to not need them, but to be glad that they're there when you do. So I don't know so much about escrow, but, you know, potentially, I don't know. It's just a fancy word I like using. I definitely like the, yeah, the but, fire I mean, but that, that's sort of like, it's a little bit how our medical system, especially in the U.S., is broken, that your doctor makes more money the sicker you are. And it should be the opposite. We should pay doctors to keep you well. And if you get sick, then, well, the doctor has to do some work. So same thing with open source is people should be paying for there not to be bugs. And if there are bugs, expect because of that contract that they will be immediately fixed. That makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. I love that. Well, hopefully, I think there's a lot of work in that space. And I'm looking forward to seeing if we have more stuff coming out. I mean, we recently had Flossbank on. There's FAIR, OSS. There's a few organizations that are kind of working on figuring out how do we have other models here. For now, really appreciative of the blog post you wrote and of your perspective. I want to make sure I ask... I know Eric said you're a positive guy and you're super optimistic and we are the doom and gloom podcast of doom because it's just really, it's a tough problem, right? It's tough. Otherwise we wouldn't have to talk about it. You know, we don't talk about how to put shoes on. This is not a podcast for how to put shoes on. So do you have any hope? Are you going to keep working on open source? That is a great question. And this is a hard year to be asked that question. 
Yes. You know, I'm maintaining final form somewhat actively. There's not a lot. The changes and things that come up are pretty minimal at this point. It's fairly feature complete, which, you know, you hate to say on the record, but. And I haven't been maintaining Redux form for a while. I've passed that off to a couple of people that are doing that. But I think that if I had a great idea for a new library, I don't think I would be able to not open source it. If people are welcome to, you know, DM me on Twitter or something if they think they have a model that might work well. I've heard a bunch of different models and none of them sounds all that great. So Optimistic? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, part of the reason I wrote that blog post was just out of frustration of, look, you know, the emperor has no clothes here. This is broken. So, yeah, I'm sort of straddling the doom and, and hope because that's all I can think to do. Well, that's about where we all are. So thank you so much. I know we keep talking about your blog. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I don't really have a blog. This is one particular post that I wrote and it's, I guess you'll put a link to it in the show notes or something. It's on dev.2. People can find me on the internet on Twitter at Eric Rass. That's E-R-I-K-R-A-S. And my final form library is at final-form.org. And yeah, Twitter basically is the best place to hit me up if you want to talk to me. Excellent. And you are at Eric R-A-S on Twitter. That's Eric with a K. Correct. Eric, I want to move on to Spotlight, where we talk about projects that have helped us get us to where we are, that have made us feel good inside, or that we think really just need some light shed upon them. So to get us kicked off here, Eric Berry, what is your Spotlight for today? Yeah, my Spotlight's a tool that I've been using lately, which is pretty amazing. Uh, It's called PG Hero. What it does is it provides a essentially tooling and dashboards and analytics for your Postgres instance, and it ties in with uh, Ruby on Rails. And I do want to give a specific shout out to Andrew Kane, who is the author. When I was researching this, I found that he's also the author of so many gems that I use, like ChartKick and SearchKick and Ahoy and Blazor. And like so many of these libraries are just incredible. So Like you, Eric, he is also one of those people that just keeps giving back. And I I thank him as well as you for what you guys provide. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Justin? My pick this week is Dato, D-A-T-O. It is a better menu clock with calendar and time zones for macOS. It's by Sindre Soros, who Eric mentions in his blog post. Eric says in his blog post, I challenge you to find a website that doesn't contain some of his code. I challenge you to find a NPM module in your terminal that is not by him. But anyway, that's a different story. And he also says he deserves $1 million in annual recurring royalties. And I agree with that. So for $299, you can help him get him there. So Dotto by Sindre Soros. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Justin. My pick today is Etim Online, E-T-Y-M online.com. This is not a software project, although they do have a Chrome extension and they also have an iOS and Android app. I notice looking at the bottom, they have a Patreon. They have a ye old swag shop. Etym Online is the online etymological dictionary. I use it all the time. Some of you may know I moonlight as a Latin teacher for one hour a week. 
And I'm constantly looking up words to be like, what's the etymology of that? Is it from this Latin root? So this has given me a ton of joy in my life. And I highly suggest you use it if you ever wondered yourself, where did that word come from? Eric Rasmussen, not Eric with a C. What is your spotlight for today? I also love Dato or Dato. And another one of Sindre's apps that I use that I love is called Gifsky. Yes. G-I-F-S-K-I. It just had an update. I loved it. And that's available on the Mac App Store. And it's great for submitting a PR and showing how the visuals work because you record a little video on your little screencast and you create a GIF from that using this app. And it lets you size it down and make it so that it fits under the GitHub 10 megabyte upload limit. I, I use that all the time. But that wasn't going to be my spotlight. I have found a ton of value lately in this project called GraphQL Code Generator. And this is a thing that will analyze your GraphQL schema and then generate a strongly typed API to use. I personally use it with TypeScript. But what this does is it, the people at my company that work on the back end, you know, they define the, the schema. We run this code generator thing and it generates thousands of lines of strongly typed TypeScript code for me. And with React hooks and things like this, so that whenever I want to query something on the back end with GraphQL, I have this, you know, use a current user query or whatever. And it brings me back all my data that I know is strongly typed. And it helps me find things where a particular value may or may not be defined. And it, you know, TypeScript tells me, hey, you assumed that every user was going to have an email address, but that's not true according to the backend schema. And anyway, it saved lots and lots of time for me. I love it. I'm very pleased with it. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you on the podcast. I encourage everyone to use React Final Form instead of React Form if you're doing anything with React. Super awesome. And to reach out to Eric if you have questions. And thank you again so much. Take care. Thanks, y'all. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. 